Welcome to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Dave Winogren. Welcome to the show that brings together government and industry leaders to accelerate government mission outcomes. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about quantum computing. And if you're of the opinion that you have plenty of time to get up to speed on quantum, then you're going to want to pay close attention to our guests today, because the future is now. We're delighted to be joined by four outstanding leaders who are part of ACT-IAC's Emerging Technology Community of Interest. Jeremy Woods is the Chief Enterprise Architecture Branch at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and Government Advisor to the ACT-IAC Emerging Technology Community of Interest. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Dave. Yeah, I um got involved with this when we in our uh, associates program at ACT-IAC uh, helped us kind of try to kickstart uh, something around quantum and did a quantum presentation. The next thing you know, our community of interest uh, saw the value and started in the working group. So very happy to be here. Very good. Tim Gilday is the Emerging Tech Senior Director at GDIT and Industry Chair of the ACT-IAC Quantum Knowledge Group and also the new Vice Chair of the Emerging Technology Community of Interest. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us on, Dave. Uh, it's been a pleasure being a part of ACT-IAC all these years. I think I learned more from the community that I contribute, but very happy to be uh, in a lead role with Quantum Knowledge Group for the moment. Sabina Sokol is the Chief Resource Officer and U.S. Ambassador at Girls in Quantum and the Research and Prototype Lead for the ACT-IAC Emerging Tech Accelerator. Sabina, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me here. Yeah, I'm the Chief Resource Officer of Girls in Quantum. We're an international nonprofit organization whose mission is to democratize quantum education. And so we're building a community of like-minded peers and equipping those individuals with as many resources and opportunities as possible to build the most diverse quantum workforce we can. Very good. And Carlene Stecky is Executive Vice President at Tantus Technologies and a member of the ACTI Quantum Knowledge Group. Carlene, welcome to the show. Yes, I'm excited to be here. I've uh, been a long participant in ACT-IAC. I've been at Tantus Technologies uh, for close to uh, 18 years now. I'm the executive vice president there. It's been a great place to work, truly because of the culture and uh, the mission that we're helping our customers support and having an opportunity to make our world better. I got involved with this specific initiative because I help many of our customers with their cyber and zero trust journeys. And I Kept hearing uh, a little bit about what we'll talk about later related to quantum and cyber threats and thought, you know what, I better learn more about this topic. And so I uh, got involved in this group and it's been a really, really great way to get connected and learn and also get involved in the space as well. Very good. And I appreciate you all telling us a little bit about yourselves. That was where I wanted to start the show, but I want to give Tim a chance. Tim, if you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself and your organization, jump right in. Sure. Well, General Dynamics IT, GDIT, is a very large uh, defense contractor, uh, federal strategic integrator that supports pretty much every branch of the U.S. government. I have the great honor to be paid to learn. Uh, so my role is uh, Senior Director of Emerging Technology, and uh, half of my time is spent just trying to keep abreast of the quick evolution of these fun, uh, exciting, and uh, full of potential types of emerging technologies. And then we uh, try to vet them. We find the right product vendors that are dealing in these and then pull them into potential solutions that might aid the government either doing something better, faster, less expensively, or in some way um, decreasing risk. On the uh, side, you know, I, I do a lot with ACT-IAC. So the Quantum Knowledge Group, um, Jeremy and I are government and industry chair. I'm the industry chair. 
that has been, I think it's one of the newest uh, working groups at ACT-IAC, and that has been just a, a privilege because the community itself is learning together. It's a very new topic um, generally across the government space. And as we all ask these fresh-eyed questions, we realize that's exactly what the government needs to know, and that's what helps us to focus on our efforts in the emerging tech uh, community. And Jeremy, um, before we get into the topic of the day, is there anything else you'd like to add about the work that you're doing? Yeah, I've been very fortunate. This is uh, I've been involved with the Emerging Tech uh, Community Ventures for probably six or seven years, and I was the government chair for uh, five of those years, and and helped to you know bolster government. You know, as a government individual, here are things we need to think about that government cares about. Right? These are the challenges of the day. Uh, able to share. I've worked at multiple organizations uh, during that time frame. Share some perspectives, and I talked to a lot of government people. Uh, in the in the government community, across agency um, interactions, and I like to share those things as generic as we can, right? You know, we have a lot of restrictions, and what we're a lot of talk about generally amongst what happens at the detail level in our organizations. But we can talk strategy and concerns, right, in the, the future challenges. And this is a great topic for that kind of thing, where we can say, what does government need to worry about uh, when it's appropriate to worry about it, and what can we use it for? Okay. Now let's dive into quantum computing. Through all of your hard work and the work of others, ACT-IAC recently released the report, Fundamentals of Quantum Computing, Frequently Asked Questions and Mythbusting, which I gotta say is a great read and our listeners can find it by going to the website. We'll give you more information on that as the show goes on. Carlene is the primary author of the report. Let's start with some stage setting. What should our audience be aware of in terms of quantum computing and some of the key concepts? Yeah, that's probably a great place to start. And I find when I'm defining quantum computing that it's critical to kind of weave in some of the principles of classical computing as well. So for the purpose of today's conversation, when we say classical computers, we mean, you know, the ones that are on your desk, the ones that are in the data center, kind of computers as we generally know them today. So classical computers run on binary digits, which we call bits. And those bits are either a zero or a one, they are off or they are on. These bits run through transistors that solve classical algorithms and perform computations in the background. Right now, we don't see all of what's happening in the background, right? Because we have interfaces and layers, and so we don't see all of the things that are happening behind the scenes. Quantum computing, on the other hand, applies principles of quantum physics and mechanics to the concepts of computers. Remember, physics explains kind of the world around us, how everything works, and quantum physics explains the world and how it works on the tiniest of scales. While classical computers are running on bits, the zeros and ones, quantum computers leverage something called qubits, which is short for quantum bits. Unlike a bit, which can be a zero or a one, a qubit can be something called a superposition. And this means that it can be either a zero a one, or kind of anything in between, or even zero and one at the same time. It's a really hard concept to kind of wrap around your mind when we're used to thinking about things being so binary, right? Qubits also leverage another quantum mechanics principle called entanglement, and that allows for two or more qubits to become correlated in a way that the state of one qubit becomes dependent on the state of another. And then the third and kind of final principle uh, when we talk about quantum computing is the idea of interference. And that's where the state of one qubit can interfere with the state of another. 
And this interference can either be constructive or deconstructive and cause noise or errors. And that's something we'll talk a little bit more about later because there's a lot of efforts to try to figure out how we curb noise and errors. So these three principles together, the superposition, entanglement, and interference, mean that quantum computers can solve certain kinds of problems that are very, very complex very quickly. By performing parallel mathematical calculations and handling kind of massive amounts of data, quantum computers can execute these algorithms in a short amount of time. And keep in mind that these are algorithms that would take a classical computer maybe hundreds of years to process if they could even process them at all. With that, maybe I'll kind of throw it back to Sabina to fact check what I, what I just gave and see if there's anything else that maybe she wants to add in terms of any additional main principles that the listeners should know about. Excellent. Sabina, dive right in. Yeah, I would just like to give maybe an analogy to help visualize this. So if a classical computer, or well, when talking about the differences between classical and quantum computing, if a classical computer were, for example, solving a maze, it would need to go through and check each potential solution or each path, in this case, one at a time until it gets to the right one. On the other hand, if a quantum computer were solving a maze, it would leverage those properties that Carleen discussed to check all potential solutions or paths at once, which is a little weird and a little difficult to wrap your head around, but essentially that's how it works. And it can do that simultaneously to get to the right one, the right path. Excellent. Um, Tim, you want to pile on anything else on the sort of the intro part? Well, they explained the uh, the science behind it very well. I think there's just a, a few other things that we need to do to level set uh, from an audience perspective. And that's that from a hard work perspective, we're, we're still in the early stages. We're still exploring which of the best paths uh, might get us there fastest. Some of the, the underpinning things that Carleen mentioned, entanglement, error correction, noise, these are things that um, we're finding ways around. How do you uh, account for noise when you're running computations? And again, there's superconducting, there's ion trap, there's topological approaches, and, and many more. Uh, so at the moment, again, we're, we're on the sidelines here watching this magnificent race for uh, quantum supremacy and, and meaningful computation to come from these computers. But right now, I think it's mostly about getting our workforce educated and ready for the impact and the potential of these tools. We're going to take a short break now, and when we return, we'll continue our conversation with Jeremy Wood, Chief Enterprise Architecture Branch at the SEC, Tim Mugalday, Emerging Tech Senior Director of GDIT, Sabina Sokol, Chief Resource Officer at Girls in Quantum, and Carlene Stecky, Executive Vice President at Tantus Technologies. I'm Dave Wenergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. I'm Dave Wintergren, and on today's show, we're talking about quantum computing. Our guests are Jeremy Wood, Chief Enterprise Architecture Branch at the SEC, Tim Golday, Senior Director for Emerging Technology at GDIT, Sabina Sokol, Chief Resource Officer and U.S. Ambassador at Girls in Quantum, and Carlene Stecky, Executive Vice President at Tantus Technologies. All four are volunteer leaders of ACT-IAC's Quantum Knowledge Group and the Emerging Technology Community of Interest. As we were going to break, we were sort of given some initial thoughts about quantum computing and sort of setting the stage. And I wanted to give Jeremy a chance to jump in on that conversation before we move on to the next area. Jeremy, what else would you like to add? Uh, first say, I really, really liked Sabina's picture of the maze 
because it, that is a key aspect of quantum computing and that it's just it's not just faster right uh, chips sets and computing has been on this dynamic uh, improvement over the years of fitting more and more things on the chips and increasing the processing power and this is not that this is completely fundamentally different in how it leverages that hardware to do computing and i think it's an important thing that we can't we will never be able to scale our classic computers to ever meet what quantum computing is potentially going to give us in the future. Jeremy, we're going to stay with you. As you survey the federal market, and I'll say both government agencies and contractors, what are some initial forays or use cases or areas of interest that you're seeing in quantum? So I think government has lots of problems, right? Those problems are not uh, any different depending on the technology we throw at them. We have large data, big, humongous data sets. We we, We leverage you know, AI or machine learning to try to understand those data sets, understand patterns and, you know, figure out what's going on with them. That's why our AI working group with the Emerging Tech Community of Interest has been extremely popular. We have lots of participation from uh, from amazing group of uh, industry and government uh, people because those problems are finally, we're, we're getting a lot of traction in government around AI, you know, AI usage and the right way to use it and the right way to get the solutions we want. The cool thing is quantum is going to just exponentially improve that situation for us and things that take a long time to uh, get results today, or or there are things we won't even tackle because the data sets are too large and we can't process them in a a meaningfully timeframe to make a decision based on the information. Quantum is going to fix that for us. Um, Let's go to uh, Tim next and say, you know, continue on that thought. It's still nascent technology, but but we are seeing some interest areas. And so what, what are you sort of seeing in the federal market in terms of some initial dipping our toes into the water on quantum? Sure. And uh, it, it's important to remember with all emerging technologies that they really do tend to follow that uh, hype cycle, right? The peak of inflated expectations, which is where we are right now in quantum. And it's great because it brings attention to it. We all start learning. We're excited. Uh, but there is a reality. It's going to take some time for the hardware to catch up. And there truly is, as some of the experts that have been speaking with the quantum knowledge group have said themselves, we need a different style of programming, a different way of thinking, because the way that the nature of these uh, these quantum computers is significantly different from what we're used to with classical computers from a programming perspective. The, the quantum logic gates, how do you configure those to get um, the output that you want? So we need uh, both the hardware and the software to be in place before we can have truly deep, meaningful, commercialized uh, tackling of the, the bigger problems like optimization, um, supply chain, chemistry and materials science. Uh, there have been some lighter weight, true demonstrations of um, minor quantum computing power like uh, quantum supremacy demonstrations. And those are always debatable because you can sometimes fine tune a supercomputer to achieve it in an uh, innovative way. So while that's uh, controversial, these are attempts to use uh, maybe non-commercial applications to show the, the ability of quantum computers, like factoring small numbers using Shor's algorithm or uh, simulating uh, quantum systems on a smaller scale, some basic optimization problems, and maybe um, like proofs of concepts for machine learning tasks. And like Jeremy was saying down the road, there's a lot of promise for quantum computing to accelerate machine learning and AI. And that's, I think, the biggest game changer but I really do think it'll be a while before we start to grab the bulk of that benefit. Sabina, how about you? What are you seeing as some initial areas of interest? Well, I'd like to just 
touch on and emphasize something that Tim was talking about with optimization problems and using quantum computers to solve those, I just want to emphasize that there is that one common misconception that quantum computers can just solve any problem faster or more efficiently than a classical computer. The reality is that we aren't going to use quantum computers to calculate two plus two, most likely, right? We're really concerned with a specific class of problems. These are larger optimization problems that have many, many solutions to go through. And that's why we're leveraging those properties that Carlene mentioned earlier with being able to calculate multiple solutions or have multiple states at once. And we're seeing applications across many industries within quantum chemistry and finance and so on. Serena, I appreciate you, you saying that and, and thinking about this idea about large optimization problems is a good way of, of framing it. Carlene, how about you? Um, any any other initial thoughts on um, areas of initial interest? This echoes a little bit of what Jeremy already discussed, but that ion machine learning. I mean, what we've been able to do so far with classical computers has been amazing. Um, but training machine learning models, it comes with a high computational cost, right? And so that cost is really slowing down the pace at which we can advance. And if we want to speed up progress in this area, you know, we really have to push continuing exploration around how quantum computing rather can enable faster machine learning. And Tim, you want to add something else? Yeah, I did have a go back. Thanks, Dave. Uh, so you, you kind of, you centered around what is the government doing now? And it's not that they're just sitting, waiting for this technology to mature. They truly are getting their hands dirty and learning. So Air Force and other um, agencies have actually in some cases, bought outright uh, quantum computers. And these are small quantum computers, right? You're not necessarily using them to achieve uh, major breakthroughs, but it's more of a learning experience. So workforce development, education, um, consultation, and training is, is something that we're seeing. There are blanket agency announcements um, where intelligence community and national security are looking at how how they can prepare themselves to leverage quantum on things that have already been shown theoretically possible, like image analysis and uh, synthesizing data at a greater scale than supercomputers are able to do today. So they, they are active already. And then, of course, there's the other side of the coin, which we have a publication coming out soon about, which is the cybersecurity threat from quantum computers of, of the future. That's a now problem, and the government is aware of it, and there is a whole different section of the government very deeply focused on that today. Uh, I know Sabina, myself, and a few others are actually working in that part of, of the government's efforts as well. Yeah, we're definitely going to come back and talk in more depth about that. And I guess the Department of Energy, the National Laboratories, too, are also doing forays into this space. Yeah, very good. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the fundamentals of Quantum Report is the good job that it does around myth busting. And I'm, I'm a big fan of busting myths because I think we sometimes are far more hampered in our collaboration and contracting efforts by things we think are true than by the reality of it. And so I really appreciate you all spending the time on that. Let's do a few lightning rounds now, and I'll offer a couple of the statements from the report. And then we'll let you we'll let you opine a little bit more about about the myths or realities. And we'll do the first one with you, Carlene. There's the reality that quantum computers are fundamentally different than current computers. What would you like to say about that? I mean, the reality that is definitely a reality. You heard Sabina talk a little bit about the maze analogy and how just a classical computer would try to solve that problem versus a quantum computer. Jeremy also talked about in classical computing, it's been much more about just fitting more on chips, trying to improve processing power. The way the quantum computer works is, is totally different. I think a lot of people have this thought that it's like maybe a, a supercomputer or high-performance computer, but it's just not that. 
even at its fundamental core, how it works, operates, and approaches problems is so incredibly different. Um, just one thing that I want to highlight, too, is that because it's so incredibly different, you heard Tim talk a little bit about this need for workforce development. Uh, this is not a situation where we're going to be able to take resources and just say, hey, you were working on this. Now I'm going to move you or apply you here. Uh, there's a whole quantum literacy effort that we really need to start ramping up, as well as a development around a lot of the adjacent technologies for error and noise reduction as well. I think the way that you all introduced the topic around this idea about zero and one and every shade of gray in between, as well as both at the same time, really sort of helps set the stage about when you would be using quantum computing as opposed to a, you know, a zero one type of computer structure. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll continue our conversation with Jeremy Wood, Chief Enterprise Architecture Branch at the SEC, Tim Gilday, Emerging Tech Senior Director at GDIT, Sabina Sokol, Chief Resource Officer at Girls in Quantum, and Carlene Stecky, Executive Vice President at Tantus Technologies. I'm Dave Wintergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. I'm Dave Wintergren, and today we're discussing quantum computing. Our guests are Jeremy Wood, Chief Enterprise Architecture Branch at the SEC and the Government Advisor to the ACT-IAC Emerging Technology Community of Interest. Tim McGilday is Senior Director for Emerging Technology at GDIT, an Industry Chair of the ACT-IAC Quantum Knowledge Group and the Vice Chair of the Emerging Technology Community of Interest. Sabina Sokol is Chief Resource Officer and U.S. Ambassador at Girls in Quantum and the Research and Prototype Lead for the ACT-IAC Emerging Tech Accelerator. And Carlene Stecky is the Executive Vice President at Tandis Technologies and also a member of the ACTIAC Quantum Knowledge Group and Community of Interest. As we were going, to, as we went to break, we were talking about the, some of the great parts of the report that talk about myth bustings and what are myths and what's a realities. And we're doing a few lightning rounds on those. And so we're going to do our next one is with Tim. And with Tim, we're going to do the myth that quantum computers will replace all current computers. What would you like to say about that? Yeah, exactly. And, and layering on uh, what Carly and uh, Sabina had said earlier, there are some problems where it's just not effective uh, to use or, or more efficient to use quantum computers than classical computers, um, browsing the internet, um, basic coding. You don't want to uh, bring a bazooka where you could use a fly swatter, for example. So um, quantum computers, they excel, at, at least theoretically, at, at certain tasks that have um, you know, factorization of large numbers, or like we said earlier, optimizing complex systems, uh, simulating natural uh, quantum systems. Those types of very complicated multi-pronged problems, uh, they should be able to achieve significantly faster uh, than, you know, a classical computer, which may take thousands of years or may never be able to achieve. There are other deeper things that we still need to uh, understand, can we build the right algorithms for quantum computers to be applied to certain problems? And that is in discovery phase today. We've got our greatest mathematicians around the world working on those kinds of things. So you look out there right now, we actually don't have too many algorithms for quantum computers yet. But I would say between now and the X number of years into the future when we have commercialized quantum computers, I have little doubt that we're going to have a, a full marketplace worth of algorithms to tackle many different types of complex uh, problems. Jeremy, let's go to you for the next one. The myth 
that quantum computers will replace all of our jobs. And it is truly a myth. I mean, I think it's funny. We hear this already today with current computing, right? AI will take my job or it will you know, take over uh, aspects of, of our work. And I think that could be ramped up when we start talking about something like quantum computing, which has got even better processing capability than we can even imagine today for, for solving things. But like AI today and robotic process automation, they're just tools. They're just tools to be used for specific um, use cases, the right use case, right? Especially uh, with quantum computing as it becomes a reality, it's going to be very expensive, right? We're going to want to use it for the right tasks, for the right thing for, for a long time. It'll probably be that way. Um, and so they're going to, they're going to be tools that quantum will make more efficient, right? We're looking at optimization and efficiency, and that will make, uh, you take some of the, the work we do today that is just drudgery and get rid of it for us better, you know, like AI and robotics process automation are trying to do for us today. Quantum is just another aspect of that future for us. Uh, it's, a, it's a really important point. You know, um, sometimes our fear of change can lead us to always presume some kind of negative outcome. And I've often said on the show, the times of change are times of opportunity. And the, the report does a good job of pointing out that just like the RPA example that you use, I mean, this is a way to like routine, routinized tasks and, and data crunching, and all that kind of stuff be done by machines so that the humans can focus on the more fulfilling parts of the task and the the parts that require our, our thought processes and our leadership. So great, great to point that out. Carlene, we're going to give you the next one. And that one is the reality that quantum computers will require new programming languages. Oh, yay. <laughs> that one is a, that's a very uh, interesting question. Um, because I think uh, there's probably a two-part answer to that. The immediate answer is uh, yes. Right now, um, as Tim was talking about, we only have a limited number of algorithms. And when we look across the landscape right now, we are starting to see uh, examples of quantum instruction set languages. But we know that as kind of the functionality of these computers grows and adapts, that we're going to need to develop even more languages. It will be interesting, I think, to see uh, what we do from a language perspective to try to fill the resource gap. Do we try to make languages that resemble what some of our programmers may be used to today? But I think ultimately the answer is yes, it will absolutely require uh, new programming languages, both in the near and long-term future. And so that gets back to the one that Jeremy was just talking about, new jobs. As we, uh, as we, and right, new skills, new expertises. Although it does point to the, the important reminder that the skills that brought you here might not necessarily be the skills you will need to be successful in the future. So staying on top of this and being ready to adapt from a, well, being a COBOL programmer uh, to being a quantum programmer. Tim. Yeah, I'll add on exactly to what you're saying. Uh, there's always this fear and uh, a natural fear that jobs will be lost because of um, advanced technologies and changing technologies. And while it's true the jobs will change, what we're seeing, unfortunately, for better or worse, is an explosion of need for more jobs. Uh, so whether it's more experts across all the niches that AI is opening up, or just like Carly was saying, additional programming uh, specialists for quantum, there are just actually more problems to be solved, so more need for humans. Uh, you can see right now we still have 9 million job openings that we can't fill, and most of those are high-tech oriented. 
Sabina, we're going to turn to you first for the next question. There's a reality that quantum computing will eventually be able to break current encryption algorithms. So let's talk a little bit about, about that. I know that uh, quantum impacts on cybersecurity is a subject that you all care enough about that it's going to be the topic of your next Actinic white paper. So uh, why do people need to start caring now about cybersecurity implications of quantum and what should government agencies and companies be thinking about and preparing themselves for? Yeah, so indeed, one big area in discussions about preparing for quantum computing is cybersecurity. Shor's algorithm, which is a quantum algorithm that can, but we haven't gotten there yet, break asymmetric key systems, those that use a combination of public and private keys to encrypt data, like RSA. Basically, these schemas rely on the fact that it is difficult to factor very large prime numbers, and Shor's algorithm is basically a very efficient prime number factorization tool. So you can see why that poses a problem. And the fact that Shor's can and will be implemented one day, and the timelines for this happen, um, well, when, when this will happen will tend to vary, let's say seven to 10 years, when we have the so-called crypto-analytically relevant quantum computer, one that can implement Shor's algorithm, that's the big reason why both industry and government leaders are looking into quantum safe options now. And so many federal entities like the National Security Agency, National Institute of Standards and Technology, Office of Management and Budget, and so on, have published official guidance and roadmaps specifically addressing post-quantum cryptography. In fact, the White House released its implementation framework for the May 2023 National Security Strategy, which largely emphasized the need to move towards post-quantum algorithms that the National Institute for Standards and Technology is currently finalizing and standardizing for implementation worldwide, particularly public networks, to secure sensitive information. And the first step in the highly necessary migration towards these standards was outlined in a national security memorandum that was put out last year, NSM 10. And that's largely what the implementation framework and the national cyber strategy defer to. To sum it up quickly, agencies were required to first identify point people in their organizations to oversee migration efforts. And then agencies were also tasked with inventorying which systems are using encryption standards that are vulnerable to these crypto analytically relevant quantum computers, the ones that can break asymmetric encryption. So where are we using encryption and what kind? What are current and hardware and software capabilities and limitations? What's the shelf life of our most sensitive data? Basically just what is on our networks and how might those systems be vulnerable to quantum computers? So this inventorying process for federal civilian executive branch agencies was concluded in May of this year with the intention of now trying to gauge what resources, financial and otherwise, need to be allocated in order to make this migration to post-quantum cryptography as smooth as possible. And this twofold process, identifying leaders and organizations to stay up to date about quantum, and then inventorying networks and systems, is not just applicable to federal agencies who are required to do so. The private sector has been advised, and many companies are already conducting very similar assessments and have been working very closely with the federal government to ensure their timely transition to post-quantum as well. So one more thing I'd like to note about quantum cyber specifically is the concept of maintaining cryptographic agility, meaning that as we're migrating to our current set of post-quantum algorithms, and I say current 
because they will be broken eventually by even more powerful quantum computers and will need to be replaced by newer, more robust algorithms. As we make this transition now, it's important for both public and private organizations to build out and document their cryptographic systems in a way that prioritizes interoperability and adaptability for future standards. And that, again, is emphasized in the National Cyber Strategy Implementation Guidelines that were released. And to do that, to be quantum resilient, not just as an individual organization, but as a nation and as a society, quantum education and quantum workforce development on all levels for K-12, chief information security officers, and everyone in between, embracing this new technology and experimenting with it is absolutely critical in the shift to a more quantum literate society, as Tim and Carlene implied earlier, and turn it over to Jeremy to talk about some more specific quantum resources for government and industry. We'll do that in just a minute. We're going to take a short break. This is a crucial topic, and we want to get back to it because we're talking about many of the things that we've taken for granted for a long, long time being happy to be changed. But uh, when we return, we're going to continue our conversation with Jeremy Wood, Chief Enterprise Architecture Branch at the SEC, Timmy Golday, Emerging Tech Senior Director at GDIT, Sabina Sokol, Chief Resource Officer at Girls in Quantum, and Carlene Stecky, Executive Vice President at Tandis Technologies. I'm Dave Wendergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wenergren, and on today's episode, we're discussing quantum computing with Jeremy Wood, Chief Enterprise Architecture Branch at the SEC, Tim Gilday, Emerging Tech Senior Director at GDIT, Sabina Sokol, Chief Resource Officer at Girls in Quantum, and Carlene Stecky, Executive Vice President at Tantus Technologies. All four are volunteer leaders of ACT-IAC's Quantum Knowledge Group and the Emerging Technology Community of Interest. We were talking before the break about how so many things that we take for granted from HTTPS to PKI to data encryption all have a future that could look very different as quantum technologies come to fore and the ability to do brute strength cracking of, of what is unable to be cracked at this moment. And so, uh, Jeremy, what, about, what would you like to add about cybersecurity and quantum? I think Sabina did a fantastic job at, at really giving the overview of, of the state of where we are, the, the concern. I would highlight that, um, you know, there's been a number of uh, legislative and, and guidance documents put out by uh, OMB and the White House to tell agencies to be ready. A lot of that's going to land on the, you know, chief information security officer, as most things do in, in the cyber realm. And, I think that it's it's incumbent on them, uh, as well as whoever the agency has appointed to to be the quantum lead, to collaborate on that and start thinking about you know what's that mean for us. I, I Sabina mentioned in her uh, uh, explanation about the government uh, inventory, if you will, and that many of my uh, counterparts at government agencies are well into that, making sure we have documentation on what systems use what and. and so that we understand where the risks are, right? It's, a, it's all about risk-based approach. I would say um, for more resources in that respect, uh, there's quantum.gov. Quantum.gov is an amazing website. It's got information talking to the cyber aspect, but uh, uh, even more importantly, it's got information talking to the education aspect. How are we going to, as Tim and, and Carlene and Sabina have all mentioned throughout this, how do we get educated? How does government current staff 
right? Upskilling is going to be a challenge. How do we get current people knowledgeable? And then who um, are we going to need to hire in the future to bring more, you know, more capability and expertise into government? And we'll put a link to quantum.gov on the website so people can find it easily. Tim, any other thoughts about quantum and cyber? Sure, it's hard to follow that, but uh, I would add it's uh, it's important to realize the sky is not falling. Technology, for the most part, is always going to get better and better, and that tends to bring us greater benefits, but also, of course, it brings along risks that are new from time to time. And historically, we've had great success in finding solutions to these challenges. It's in our human nature, you know, we find it. But I'll go back to the 2008 financial crisis and quote Ben Bernanke. He said, uh, true and lasting change sometimes only comes in times of crisis. So I look at this um, cyber threat from quantum computers almost as an opportunity. It's, it's a good thing that we have to think about it. Even though it's not occurring yet, you can harvest that encrypted data now and potentially hack through it later. That is a today problem that becomes a forcing function for something that I think many people have already heard about, zero trust. These are good cyber hygiene practices that we should be doing every day already. You should, of course, always know all the assets and cryptological inventory in your IT environment. You should know that people and systems are all part of zero trust, and those processes that bind them together are very important. So, again, this uh, quantum threat uh, to our IT systems falls under that greater umbrella of zero trust. Carlene, let's, uh, let's look to the future. What are some quantum next steps that you'd like our audience of government and industry technology leaders to, to focus on in the next couple of years? Yeah, and this kind of piggybacks off of Tim, what Tim was talking about, this, looking at this as an opportunity to create uh, new opportunities. I really think we have to, to, to imagine how government uh, can collaborate with educational institutions in new and different ways to build uh, you know, the workforce of the future to build quantum literacy, uh, to make quantum technologies widely available and accessible. Uh, one of the bills that we've been following recently is something that was introduced in the House that's called the Quantum Sandbox for Near-Term Application Act. And its goal is to promote collaboration between pri the private and public sector and making this technology available. There are going to be so many things from a governance perspective that we have to monitor. You know, how do we make this technology widely available while thinking about things like uh, proprietary technology um, and some of the cybersecurity concerns that Sabina and Tim and Jeremy have discussed? Um, of course, there's going to be a, a big need to develop the workforce, but also thinking about from a technology perspective, um, it's not just the quantum computer itself, but it's building a lot of the adjacent technologies that this uh, is going to need to work and to roll out successfully. And so um, from a future perspective, looking at the legislation, looking at the adjacent technologies is really where we're spending a lot of our energy. Sabina, what's the next step that you'd like our audience to be thinking about? Well, I'd like to highlight, Carlene just mentioned legislation, the National Quantum Initiative Advisory Council, the NQIAC, was recently enhanced a couple months ago. It was originally established a couple years ago, but it's now being pushed to the forefront as an independent evaluator of the National Quantum Initiative Program in the United States. And this committee serves as an advisor to the Presidential Cabinet, Congress, National Science and Technology Council, and a couple other entities within the quantum information science space. And I think 
This is a very big step in quantum computing. It's a marker of the federal government's big push to accelerate quantum research and development and to stay ahead of the quantum computing curve. So I'd say continue investing in QIS and quantum workforce development, particularly in K-12. All right. We've got about a minute and a half left. We're going to go to Tim next. Tim, what's the next step you'd like to see? Continued education. And I would say while emerging tech always looks like a shiny object and it's fun to try and figure out how can I use blockchain? How can I use quantum? How can I use this aspect of AI? It's better to define the key problems or outcomes that you want, whether it's a government agency, uh, a company, or you in your own individual life. Try to figure out what do you want to achieve in your setting? And then you work backwards. More often than not, there's going to be a component that emerging tech can play in that but it's never a silver bullet, right? You're not going to achieve, uh, you're not going to solve world hunger or cure cancer with one technology alone, right? And you need to work backwards from that. And it all begins from educating and then centering yourself on those top priorities. That's my big takeaway. All right, Jeremy, we've got about a minute left. So we're going to give you the last word. What's the next step for you? Yeah, I, I completely agree with uh, what, what's been said here. Uh, education, education, education. Government is... Like any other organization, we are constantly having to do change initiatives, figure out how to incorporate new capabilities and technology, right? When we move from mainframe computing to desktop computing, we move from desktop computing to cloud computing, all of those things require education, upskilling, and change management. And that is a key skill that the government will need as we start to tackle even this new emerging technology. You're all like music to my ears because the tagline for this show is accelerating government mission outcomes through collaboration, leadership, and education. And I heard you mention all three of those as our next steps. Jeremy Wood is the Chief Enterprise Architecture Branch at the SEC. Tim McGilday is Emerging Tech Director at General Dynamics Information Technology. Sabina Sokol is the Chief Resource Officer and U.S. Ambassador at Girls in Quantum. And Carlene Stecky is Executive Vice President at Tantas Technologies. Their recently released report is Fundamentals of Quantum Computing, Frequently Asked Questions and Myth-Busting. And their next report will be on the cyber implementations of of quantum computing. Thank you all for your leadership in the federal technology community. Thank you for your support to ACT-IAC, and thank you especially for taking the time to join us today. ACT-IAC's emerging technology community interest is a great way to plug in and get involved. If you'd like to learn more, check out our website. ACT-IAC's Imagination ELC conference has been described as the best annual event in the government technology arena, and you can be part of this premier event on October 29th to the 31st in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and join your fellow government and industry executives as we tackle the top issues and topics that are facing the federal tech market. This year's theme is the business of doing, and we'd love to see you there. If you'd like to learn more about quantum computing, the reports we discussed on today's show, or how to register for the conference, check out the Federal News Network website or go to our website, www.actiac.org. I'm Dave Wenergren, and you've been listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Accelerating Government on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.